Good morning. Would you show your appreciation for our praise team? Thank you. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with problems that are evident in the church at Corinth. The first problem that takes up the first four chapters is the problem of divisions. We come today to the second problem in the church at Corinth. It's contained in chapter 5, and that's the problem of immorality. Now, sin manifests itself in many forms, and usually where there is one form, there are other forms. Sin in one area always makes us susceptible to sin in other areas. And the sin of the first four chapters was largely a sin of the mind and the heart. It dealt with their attitudes, jealousy, prejudice, selfishness. The sin of chapter 5 is a physical sin. It's a sexual sin. And you see, it's not surprising that where you find one you find the other. Now, chapter 5 is especially relevant to us today because we live in a society where sexual immorality runs rampant. And the thought pattern in society today is that sexual behavior is a biological necessity to be satisfied however one desires. It's really no different than the need to eat or drink and doesn't really carry any more responsibility. And that philosophy is propagated in movies, on television, in music, books, magazines, advertising. You almost feel like it's the exception today to find a happily married, faithful couple. Sexual promiscuity and immorality is so prevalent today that it's almost anticipated it's almost expected. I heard about a sign in a Hollywood jewelry store window that said, we rent wedding rings. How does the church fit into that kind of setting? What is expected of us? Are we allowed to compromise because we live in a difficult day and a challenging age? And what is to be our response when sexual immorality finds its way into the church? Well, Paul answers those questions for us in chapter 5 in a passage that tells us there are times when people are to be removed from the church. I almost entitled this message, How to Get Kicked Out of Church. Now, I enjoy having fun, and I enjoy happy passages. This is not one of them. It isn't real funny, but it's real necessary. And the temptation when we come to a passage like this is to commit what I call kangaroo exegesis. I ran into a pastor the other day. He heard I was teaching 1 Corinthians. He said, well, I, I taught through 1 Corinthians and knowing his church, I said, well, what did you do with chapter 5? And he said, oh, I just skipped it. Kangaroo exegesis. 
That's why it doesn't surprise me when I ask pastors, have you ever excommunicated anyone from your church? I can predict the answer. It's going to be never. And my guess is that that's largely attributed to the fact that they are skipping this passage and not to the fact that they don't have these kind of problems in their church. While this is a painful thing to do, it's a scriptural thing to do. And we're going to look at this chapter over two weeks, and I want us to pick out five points about dealing with immorality, which are really five points about dealing with church discipline. And we're going to look at the first three this morning in verses 1 to 5, beginning with the report in verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now I want you to notice three things about this problem. Number one, it's a public problem. The word immorality is the Greek word poinia from which we get our word pornography. It's a word that means any kind of sexual involvement. To help you understand the word, it's different from the word adultery. Adultery is a word that means a married person having sexual involvement outside of marriage. Immorality is a broader term. It actually includes adultery, but it also includes any other kind of sexual sin, whether that be premarital sex, incest, lesbianism, homosexuality, bestiality, you name it, anything. And there was immorality in the church at Corinth. And their excuse couldn't be that they didn't know better. They couldn't claim ignorance. In fact, in verse 9 of this chapter, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul had already written another letter that dealt with this same issue. And if you remember the history of this church in Acts chapter 18, Paul had come there and been their teacher for a year and a half. And then when he left, Peter became their teacher, and then Apollos was their teacher, and so they really don't have an excuse. They knew the scriptures, and the scriptures are very clear on this subject. You only have to look in the Old Testament. You read Deuteronomy chapter 22, interesting chapter. There it says, if a couple got married, and after the first night, he found out that she wasn't a virgin the leaders of the city took her outside the city and stoned her to death. Later in that chapter, it says, if a couple was caught in adultery, they were both put to death. And when you get to the New Testament, nothing changes. God has the same attitude about this kind of sin. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That kind of living is incompatible with God's kingdom. Later in this same letter, in chapter 10 and verse 8, Paul reminds us that Israel committed immorality. 
And what did God think about it? It says he killed 23,000 in one day. And then right after that in verse 11, he says, now these things happened to them as an example for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that mean? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. You say, well, how can I do that? I'm being enticed on every side every day. How do I do it? Well, he tells us in the next chapter in two words in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality. In 2 Timothy 2.22, he puts it this way, flee from youthful lusts. Our classic example is Joseph in Genesis 39, where day after day he was propositioned by Potiphar's wife until one day she just grabbed him and said, lie with me. And the Bible says he fled and came out of his coat and left it in her hands. And we learn from him not only the correct action, fleeing, but we learn the correct attitude because he said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, this kind of sin is not just a sin against somebody else or against your spouse. It's a sin against God. David realized that truth also, only he realized it a little late after his sin with Bathsheba. But in brokenness, in Psalm 51.4, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. You see, God is always offended by sexual immorality. And that includes any sex before marriage or outside of marriage. And the Corinthians knew that. They knew what God's standards were, and yet there was immorality in their midst. And not only was it there, but Paul says in verse 1, it is actually reported. It's common knowledge. Everybody knows. You see, Paul is essentially saying, the general report about you is that there's immorality. How would you like that to be the general report about our church? Somebody mentions our church, They think, oh yeah, that's the church with immorality. What a testimony. The common word going around about you guys is immorality. And so it was a public problem. Secondly, it was a perverted problem. Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. The sins of the world should be shocking the church. But in Corinth, the sins of the church were shocking the world. The sin in the church at Corinth didn't even exist among the Gentiles. And Corinth, as we learned earlier in our study, was a very corrupt city. And so what's happening here is that the church is actually making the world blush. And it ought to be the other way around. You say, well, what kind of sin would make the world blush? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 1. He says that someone has his father's wife. 
A man has a son by one marriage. His first wife either dies or he is divorced. He remarries, and in the course of that marriage, the son is attracted to his stepmother and is now living with her. And the reason I say she's his stepmother is because if it were actually his mother, verse 1 would say at the end, someone has his mother rather than his father's wife. So this is his stepmother, but when you go back to the scriptures, Leviticus 18.8 makes it clear that having a relationship with your stepmother is incest. So this is a perverted problem. It's a public problem. It's a perverted problem. Thirdly, it's a persistent problem. The verb in verse 1 is the present continuous tense. And so this is not a one-time event. It's not a one-time affair. He continues to live with her in this relationship. And on top of that, we know that this woman was not a part of the church. Because throughout this passage, when he deals with discipline, the discipline is directed to this fellow. The lady isn't mentioned at all. So on top of that, he has an unequal yoke with her. He's a believer. She's an unbeliever. She's outside of the church. She's not dealt with on this occasion. That's the report. Now, what is the church to do in this kind of situation? What is the responsibility of the church when one of its members is living in immorality? Well, first, the church has to have the right reaction. And secondly, the church has to have the right response. We see the reaction in verse 2. And first, we see the wrong reaction. Look at verse 2. Paul says, you have become arrogant. And we said that that word means puffed up. You have become filled with pride. Now, obviously, their pride was not about having sin in their midst. What were they proud about? Well, I think they were proud about their tolerance toward the sin. I think they were sticking out their chest and saying, we're so forgiving and we're so open-minded and we're so tolerant that we can allow this kind of sin right in our church. And we pat this guy on the back every Sunday. My, how wonderful we are. And it's not too hard to understand that because I think there are a lot of churches today that take pride in that very position. But that's the wrong reaction. Because Paul turns right around and he tells us the right reaction. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. The wrong reaction is to be puffed up. He said, instead of being puffed up, you should be mourning. You should be broken. You should be sorrowful. You should be weeping. You see, that's the right reaction to sin in our midst. Sin should cause remorse. And when a church can have open sin in its midst without sorrow, It's on dangerous ground. So the proper reaction to immorality is sorrow. And that reaction should then lead to the response. 
and the response we see beginning at the end of verse 2, where Paul says, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. What should happen? He should be removed. Excommunication. You say, well, why is that the response? Well, let me answer that by simply saying this. This is the very best thing for that person. You say, but, but that person needs the church. Well, he doesn't need a church that accepts that kind of sin. He doesn't need a church that's going to turn its head and ignore that kind of sin. He needs a church that will love him enough to discipline him. And let me remind you that discipline is the sign of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So the very best thing we as a church can do for an individual in an ongoing situation with immorality is to put them out of the church. But not only is it the best thing for that individual, it's also the best thing for the church because it maintains purity in the church. Hypocrites don't like to come to a church where they discipline sin. You know, the, the, the great example of this is back in Acts chapter 5. You remember in the early church, the case of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, when, you know, they had kind of, God, God had like instant discipline in the early church. So, so they lied to the Holy Spirit and came in and just dropped dead. Kind of settled the problem. But it's interesting to me what happened after that. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 5, that occurs, and then it says in verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church. That's not a bad thing. Godly fear came over the church because discipline was taking place in their midst. And then it says this in verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. Word got around. You know, if you become part of the church and you make one bad move, you're, you're history. So people stayed away. They were serious about making a commitment to the church because they realized that the church is serious about their commitment to the Lord. And then it says this, surprisingly, in verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So what do you have as a result of discipline? Fear purity, and growth. God's saying, you do it my way, and I'll work even more significantly in your midst. It's the best thing for that individual. It's the best thing for the church. Look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, For I on my part though absent in body, but present in spirit. Now, stop right there. You know, it's interesting to me that, that, that a lot of the phrases that people use in our society actually come from the Bible. I hear people using phrases all the time, and I think of the verse that it comes from. They come from our background, biblical background. This is one of those years people say, well, I can't be there, but I'll be there in spirit. Well, that's a biblical concept because Paul uses that concept here in verse 3. He says, I, I, I'm absent, but I'm there in spirit, and I have already judged him who has so committed this as though I was present. Now, what's he saying? 
He's saying, I can't be there. I'm there in spirit. But your situation is not that difficult to figure out. I don't have to be there to figure out what you should do because it's so obvious that I've already figured out what you should do even though I'm absent. What should they do? Look at verse 4. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Lord Jesus. Paul says, I can't be there, so you're going to have to do this, this thing, but don't worry. I'm there with you in spirit, but more importantly, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that refers to his authority, and with his power. Paul says, I'm not there, but don't worry about that. You've got Jesus' name, his authority, and you've got Jesus' power. I don't know if it's still popular, but the little bracelet that says, you know, what would would Jesus do? Well, Paul's telling us what Jesus would do if he was at the church at Corinth. And there was someone there professing to be a believer and living in ongoing immorality. Jesus would put him out of the church. And Paul is telling this church, you have Jesus' name and Jesus' power, and you need to do what Jesus would do and put him out. And he spells that out in verse 5. Look what he says. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, how do you deliver somebody to Satan? Do you have a seance? How how are you going to give somebody to Satan? Well, Jesus said that Satan is the prince of this world. So to to deliver somebody to Satan, all you have to do is move them out of the church. And once they get out of the church, they are in the world, and the world is ruled by Satan. So when he says deliver him over to Satan, he's just saying put him out of the church and put him in the realm where Satan is the king. Why? He says, I have decided to to deliver Satan such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh. Now, flesh there can mean body. You know, when when God allowed Satan to attack Job, what happened? He could attack his body, but he couldn't attack or touch his soul. So Paul may be saying this guy is choosing to live in sin. He's continuing to live in sin. We'll just deliver him over to Satan and let him reap the consequences of his actions. And many times those consequences are the destruction of his physical body. Here it may refer to premature death. It may refer to some kind of illness that would come into play. It may just refer to the scars that often happen when someone lives a life of sin. There are certain physical ailments and scars that show up. So flesh can mean body. It also could mean his sin nature. So he may be saying, deliver him over to Satan, put him out in the world, let him experience that, and really come to the end of himself when he no longer enjoys the fellowship of the church and no longer has those kind of things, those blessings, and he's really going to experience what it's like and hopefully come to the very end of his own flesh and come back to the Lord. 
You say, well, when you deliver somebody over to Satan, does that mean they lose their salvation? What happens to him? Well, look at verse 5 again. He's very careful about this. He says, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Satan can destroy his flesh, but his spirit will be saved. And of course, the goal of all discipline is correction and restitution. And we're not told what happened to this individual, but when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Paul is speaking there of a man who was disciplined and repented, and there Paul urges them as a church to forgive him and welcome him back into fellowship. I like to think it's the same guy. I like to think that he was put out of the church in 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians he's back, and Paul has to tell the church how to forgive this guy and really welcome him back into fellowship. I like to think that the discipline in his case led to repentance. You say, well, Dan, how does this work? I mean, we don't have the Apostle Paul writing us a letter saying, throw somebody out of the church. So how does this work? You know, do I get up here on Sunday and say, all right, you, out of here. How does it work? Well, Jesus tells us how it works in Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to go there just to get the idea because Jesus gives us the process for this and he gives us four steps in Matthew 18. It's kind of interesting to me that the the word church is only used three times in the Gospels. It's used in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And then it's used here in Matthew 18, verse 17, twice. And so having introduced the church in chapter 16 as this future entity, two chapters later, Jesus wants to explain one thing about the church because this is so important to him, and that issue is how to do discipline in the church. And he gives us four steps here. So if you have firsthand knowledge of sin, here's what you do. Step number one is a private rebuke. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. When you find out about somebody's involved in sin, let's say you find out that somebody's living in an immoral relationship. You don't get on the phone and call your friends. You don't even get on the phone and call me or a church leader. What do you do? You go to that person in private. It's kind of interesting in Scripture. You, you don't just go to this guy and pound on him with your Bible or, or come with a holier-than-thou attitude. If you want the attitude to go with, it's in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. It says you're to go with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you go to this individual saying, you know what? I could just as easily be right where you're at. In fact, I've got to be careful even talking to you that I don't get caught in the same snare 
that you're caught in. That's the attitude that we go with, and we go in private. And that's the principle here. You keep it as private as possible, as among, among as few people as possible. And Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And that's why in this situation, you keep it as private as possible. And even when he confesses that sin, you keep that as private as possible. He's to confess it to the Lord and, and perhaps to one or two other people, but that's all. It's not to come before the church and be announced. It's to stay as private as possible. Now, you want my advice on how to deal with gossipers? When somebody calls you on the phone and says, uh, I got a prayer request. Have you heard about so-and-so? And they start gossiping. All you have to do is say, uh, excuse me, have you gone to that person? It'll probably cut short the conversation. Because their responsibility is not to be talking to you about it. Their responsibility is to go to that person in private. And you will stop it. You will, what did Barney Five say? You will nip it in the bud if you will stop them and say, you're, you're way out of line. You need to be going to that person. That's the, that's the assignment not many of us want. We love to talk about it. We don't want to love that person enough to really go to them and deal with it in person. So step number one is private rebuke. He says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. End of story. If he doesn't listen to you, there's a step two. First is private rebuke. Second is plural rebuke. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Take along a couple godly people with you the next time you go to talk to him in private. Now, this is for the protection of both parties because these two witnesses may show up and discern that the brother being accused is actually innocent and the brother making the accusation has a big beam in his eye and he's not seeing things correctly. So the witnesses are really helping both sides. But assuming that there's a real issue here, the hope is that this individual is going to take this more seriously because now it's not just one person, it's two or three people that are talking to him about this and that he will listen. And Jesus says, if he listens, you've won your brother. End of story. But if he doesn't, there's a third step. First is private rebuke. Second is plural rebuke. Third is public rebuke. And that's verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If you go through step one, private, you go through step two, plural, still not listening, step three is public. You announce it in front of the entire church so that they can go to him and confront him and so that they can pray for him. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. End of story. If he doesn't listen, there's a step four. 
Step one, private. Step two, plural. Step three, public. I couldn't think of another P word. So step four is removal. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's that mean? That's the step that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, putting this person out. Jesus says you're to treat him like a, uh, what's he say, a, a publican, a Gentile, and a tax collector. Treat him like an unbeliever. Now, what's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you treat him like an enemy. Let, let me show you a passage that will help you with this. You, you can leave Matthew, well, keep your finger in Matthew 18. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Same idea. He's put out of the church. But notice verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. How are you to treat this individual? You're to continue to admonish him, hoping that he will repent, calling him to repentance and to come back to the Lord. So you don't treat him like an enemy. You don't ignore him. When you see him in a restaurant in town, you, you go, and when you have conversation with him, it's a conversation of admonishment. Boy, I'm really praying that your heart's going to change and you're going to come back to the Lord where you need to be. That's the attitude. And at that point, when we put someone out of the church, we're really saying it's up to the Lord. Hebrews 12, 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Well, we've got to do our part in that to allow the Lord to do his discipline. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to find that some people, because of their living in sin, experience weakness, sickness, and a number slept. They died. And again, the purpose of discipline is, number one, the restoration of that individual. You see, it's not our job to punish. We're not punishing. We are following God's instruction, and our goal is the restoration of that person to fellowship with the Lord. Our prayer is, if you notice in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, it says, you're to admonish that person that he might be put to shame. That, that shame might impact him, that he might experience what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's our goal for that individual. And then secondly, of course, holiness in the church. And Paul's going to talk about that in our passage, in our chapter next week, so we'll save that part. But it's the restoration of that individual and the purity of the church. Now let me show you something in closing. Look at Matthew 18 again. Kind of interesting. He gives in verse 15 to 17 the steps for discipline. And then notice what he says in verse 18. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, 
For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, we often use those verses to say, when we gather on Sunday morning, there's more than two or three of us, Jesus is here. Well, if you look at the context, that's really not what this verse means. Because he's given it in the context of the two or three witnesses that go in the course of discipline. So what he's saying is, if you will follow my pattern for discipline in the church, I'm going to be there. And that's really what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, you've got Jesus' name and Jesus' power. When you go out to do this, don't, don't, think, don't get nervous. You're, you're obeying the Lord, and he is there in a special way. Because, why? Because discipline is essential. In the life of a healthy believer and in the life of a healthy church. I'm going to stop there. And you have to come back next week to get part two. I can tell you're excited. (laughs) Let me just say this this is not about, this is about believers, it's not about unbelievers. We want unbelievers to come to our church. Bring your baggage. We love it. You've got it, bring it. We had it too. But when someone says I'm a believer and they're living like an unbeliever, that's who we've got to deal with here. And so let me, let me just clarify that as we go forward. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage, which is challenging. It's not hard to understand. It's just challenging. And Father, I pray that you would give us a right balance in this to really understand your heart and your desire and your call for us as a church and to be consistent with that, to be faithful to that even when it gets tough and even when it's hard because we realize that we've got to do what you say to allow you to work the way you want to work through us. We thank you for Jesus' promise that when we follow your directives, even when they're tough, that you're in our midst. And truly we pray that this might result as we try to be faithful to you in blessings to us as individuals and purity for us as a church that would honor and please you. We pray in Jesus' name.